to number 6, verses 22 through 26. Um, anyone volunteer to read this right off for us? You want to, Phil? Sure, number 6, 22. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his son, saying, Thus shall... Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel and I will bless them. Okay. What words stood out to you in the text there in number 622? Through 27. Two words that stood out to me. And what words stood out to you? Bless you and keep you. Okay, bless you. Bless is used repeatedly throughout this section. The Bible tells us that um, in verse 23, thus you shall bless the people. In verse 24, the Lord bless you and keep you. And that it ends with, I will bless you. So the word bless is used three times. The word keep is important there, but there's another word that's so obvious that you may tend to overlook it. The Lord. Yeah, the Lord. The Lord is used each of the times in verse 24, 25, 26. I hesitate to say what I'm about to say. And I just throw it, I'm not sure about this myself, but in light of the whole revelation of God, does the threefold mention of the Lord lead us to think in terms of the Trinity? I'm not sure that is a valid way of thinking. I'm not sure. Now, the Bible repeats the name Lord all kinds of times. If it had appeared twice or four times, I wouldn't have said that. So I don't know that that's valid. But the Lord is the source of all blessing. The Lord is the source of blessing. As a matter of fact, even one of the verses that does not mention the name of the Lord is verse 27. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel and I will bless them. I will bless them. You have probably heard me state before that in Hebrew, usually the subject of the verb is inherent in the verb. The words I will bless you is generally one word in Hebrew which includes both the subject and the object. When you have the personal pronoun used separately, it is for the sake of emphasis. It is in effect saying, I, I will bless you. That's what you have in verse 27. I, personal pronoun is separate, I will bless you. A strong emphasis on the fact that the Lord is the source of all blessings. The Lord bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you. 
We see that expression several times in the Psalms. Uh, in Psalm 80, in verse 3. I think it's used three times in Psalm 80. Psalm 80, verse 3. Psalm 80, verse 7. Psalm 80, verse 19. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And then in verse 26, the Lord give you peace. Now, this blessing was regularly pronounced by the sons of Aaron. Generally, in Numbers 5 and 6, what we have seen in verse 22, it says the Lord spoke to Moses. We've seen that over and over throughout Numbers 5 and 6. Then what Moses does is speak to the sons of Israel. But notice in verse 23, that's not what happened. In verse 23, he speaks to Aaron and his sons. He speaks to the priest and he states this priestly blessing. Now, a good passage to write in your Bible or in your notes is 1 Chronicles 23 in verse 13. And this is from the time of David. 1 Chronicles 23 verse 13. Aaron was set apart to sanctify him as most holy, he and his sons forever, to burn incense before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless in his name. One of the blessings that God gave to Aaron and his family is to bless in his name. 1 Chronicles 23 and in verse 13. Now, let me mention a couple of references uh, that uh, I will, or, or reference here, that I'm knowing that you're not going to have access to at this moment, but Sirach 50. Verse 20. Now the book of Sirach is the book of the Apocrypha that is also called Ecclesiasticus. Which I just recognize I don't know how to spell. I-C-U-S. I-C-U-S, okay. It may be. If it's wrong, it is Sarah's fault. Uh, but Ecclesiasticus, it's the same book. But this is an apocryphal book. I'm not quoting this as inspired scripture. But I am quoting this as something that tells us about Israel's history. And in that passage, it talks about Simon, who is the high priest at that time. He came down, he lifted up his hands over the whole congregation and pronounced the blessing of the Lord with his lips. So so this is a continual tradition in the uh, history of the Jewish people. Can you think of how this plays into any New Testament passages? That the priest would bless the people in the name of the Lord. Okay, Zacharias. Zacharias in Luke 1. I'll briefly mention this. But Luke 1... After Luke writes to Theophilus telling him, I'm going to write about all Jesus began to do and teach, the opening scene is in the temple. The opening scene is in the temple. And Zacharias receives a vision that he's going to have a son by the name of John. 
And he will be uh, a prophet. Uh, he will come in the power and might of Elijah. Zacharias, you remember, asked for a sign. But Zacharias uh, is unable to speak because he did not trust God the sign. Now the text tells us in Luke 1 and verse 22. Luke 1 verse 22. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and kept making signs to them and remained mute. So, Zacharias was going to come out and speak to the people. Maybe it was the habit for him to come out and bless the people. But he's unable to speak because he didn't trust God's Word. And as a result, he is unable to speak. Now, quickly, flipping to the last scene in the book of Luke. Where the Bible shows us also a temple setting. As the disciples are regularly in the temple praising God and worshiping God. In Luke chapter 24 uh, verse 52 and 53. After worshiping Him they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And continually were in the temple praising God. But notice in verse 50, when Jesus is uh, Jesus ascends to the Father, it says He led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up His hands and blessed them. He blessed them. And while He was blessing them, He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So as the book opens in the temple, Zacharias is unable to bless the people, as the book closes in, uh, the disciples will be in the temple, but when Jesus, Jesus does not ascend from the temple, but when He is ascending, He is blessing the people. I don't know if this is valid, but is there something here about the fact that the priesthood uh, from the line of Aaron is going to give way to the priesthood of Christ? It's just a thought, possibility, okay? And uh, you can explore that more on your own. Now, let me also give you something, and I encourage you to look this up. You can look it up. Katif Hinnom, or you might say Katif Hinnom Scrolls. And I tried this yesterday. And this readily came up, and it had a couple of a couple of decent articles. I'm sure there's some some that are not good, but what these were were two small um, two small pieces of paper. They said it was about the size of a cigarette rolled up. It dates from perhaps as early as 700 BC. No later thought than 500 B.C. And they have this passage of Scripture. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. The writing is so small. Some think it may have just been carried kind of as a reminder to the people or even used for someone's burial. But you can look that up 
and uh, check more about that. Number seven. Um, long chapter, isn't it? What do you what do you figure out about number seven? It's a form letter. It's what? A form letter. A form letter, okay. Yeah, in a certain way. Certain way. It's probably a passage you turn to a lot when you're broken and discouraged, aren't you? But um, we'll, we'll talk about what's in verses 12 through uh, 88 in just a moment. I know it has 89 verses in all. But let's, let's begin with... Um, just think, why is this attached? What's going to show is what each tribe brings to the tabernacle. And maybe it's connected with this account because this has shown the Lord as the source of all blessing. And how do the people respond to God's grace as revealed in number 6? They respond to it by giving and by giving generously to the Lord. That's their response to the mercy and the grace of God. In verse verse 1, it came about on the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, he anointed it and consecrated it with all its furnishings and the altar and all its utensils. He anointed them and consecrated them. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of the father's households, made an offering. They were the leaders of the tribes. They were the ones who were over the numbered men. When they brought their offerings before the Lord, six covered carts and twelve oxen, a cart for each of the leaders, a cart from every two of the leaders, and an ox from each one. Then they presented them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Accept these things from them, that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting, and you shall give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. So Moses took the carts, and the oxen, and gave them to the Levites. Stopping there just a moment. First of all, in verse 1, when the tabernacle set up, they finished anointing it and consecrated it. Not only were people that served in important roles anointed, like priests and later kings, but also anointed was the tabernacle itself and the furnishings of the holy place and the most holy place. They were, they were uh, anointed as well. Now, the Bible tells us that they bring six ox carts, six ox carts and twelve oxen as a gift for the house of the Lord. The New American Standard has in 7.5 the verbs accept and give. In 7.6, 7.6, you see the verbs took and give. Now this, this may be different in, in other versions, but this is the New American Standard version. Okay, But what I want to stress... Same Hebrew word. The same Hebrew word translated except in verse 5 is translated took 
in verse 6. What am I trying to stress? I'm trying to stress that when God tells Moses what to do in verse 5, He does exactly that in verse 6. And we see this all through all through the first five books. That, that Moses and the people will... The same verbs that God commands them used to command them are the same ones that are used to describe their action. Now, he then describes how these ox carts and oxen were used. In 7 verse 7, he deals with Gershon. Then in 7 8, Morari. Then in 7 9, Kohath. Morari, Gershon, is given two carts and four oxen. Just know that the number of carts, number of oxen is double the number of carts. Four carts and eight oxen are given to Morari and no oxen and no carts to Kohath. Now why is this significant? This is what they're going to need in moving the tabernacle. What does the tribe of Gershon move when they move the tabernacle? What did they move? Do you remember? All the drapes. It was what? All the drapes. Yeah, kind of the drapes, the the, uh, curtains. You know, I would say curtain. Katrina's more feminine drapes, and um, so. uh, But but yeah, all the things like that. Marari moves the boards, the boards, the planks, and all the things like that. They're going to need. They're going to need these oxen carts. Kohath moves what? The most holy things. Yeah, they move these objects. They don't need these carts because they're going to carry them on poles. Now, again, this comes to play. We mentioned this earlier, but this comes to play when we get to Second Samuel seven. Excuse me, Second Samuel six, about verses three through seven. 1 Chronicles chapter 13, beginning around verse 7 or 8, that they will move the holy objects on ox carts and when the oxen stumbles and and, uh, Uzzah touches the ark, he is struck dead as a result of that. Okay. Now, verses, verses 12 through 88. Really, it's first of all, it's like 12 through 83 records each of the tribes. I believe that that is right. Each of the tribes in 12 through 83. And then you have a summary from 84 to 88. Now, what happens here is that these presentations follow a clear pattern. Uh, There's repetition that's used here. First of all, you have the day of presentation. Because they present these things over 12 days. So you have the day of presentation given. Then you have the leader of the tribe mentioned. And it will be the same leaders of the tribe mentioned in chapter 1. The same leaders of the tribe mentioned in chapter 2. Then you find the vessels that were given. A silver um, 
what what was silver, then what was gold, the vessels given, then the sacrificial animals given, and then you have the tribal leader mentioned again. Now, what happens is each time each tribe brings the exact same thing. Wouldn't it have been easier to simply list them all the first time and say all the tribes bring this in the next 12 days? From a standpoint of just being concise, it would be easier. And I know if I had a student write a paper like that, I'd say, you're just taking up space. (laughs) You're just trying to fill a word count. But obviously God has a higher purpose in that. Each tribe, let's just read over once what it says these tribes brought. In verse 13, one silver dish whose weight was 130 shekels. One silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull, one ram, one male lamb, one year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. This was the offering of nation the son of Amenadab. Now, with that being repeated each specific time by all the various tribes, and they go in the order of the way the tribes encamped, when he's listing the order of the tribes here, what is the point? Katrina? It's kind of like in Psalms when the writer says the steadfast Lord, the steadfast love of the Lord is everlasting. The steadfast love of the Lord is everlasting. Okay. Yeah. He keeps driving home that point in Psalm one thirty six. You know, after each verse, the steadfast love of the Lord is everlasting, and um, so yes, you know, repetition can be an effective way to teach. Well, and I think here it's reversed. It's it's not what the Lord has done for them because he's already said that. And all that each of them are saying, and we will submit to you, and here we are going to bless you with this offering. Exactly. I think that's right. Right. The Lord has provided the source of blessing, and now they are giving back to him. Very good. And each of them have an equal share in the worship of God. All these tribes are involved. This is what draws the people of Israel together. They don't even have a central government. Right now, in a sense, they do when the Lord speaks to Moses, Moses speaks to people. But when they get in the land, they won't have a central government. They won't have a king. What draws these people together? The worship of God. Sarah? I was going to say, in each person, each tribe's sacrifice is important it's not one is more important than the other or you know we can we can ignore Dan's 
sacrifice. So yeah. And, and each one Absolutely. has that requirement, that obligation, that desire to bring it. A- absolutely. Each tribe is involved. Um, Wynnum, Gordon Wynnum said that is to emphasize as strongly as possible every tribe has a stake in the worship of God. Every tribe is fully committed to support the tabernacle and its priesthood. And every tribe is responding to God's grace by giving. Ryan? Is there something about the unity of corporate worship from the earliest times where people came together? They're not making up the the worship rules on their own. It's it's all the same in implied prescription from the Lord that they adhere to? There must be something about worship that is unifying. It's got to be. And um there's just got to be something that is unifying about that from just the way it is presented in Scripture. Now, how to put my finger on all of that, I don't know. But just from the emphasis that God puts on it and the results that He expects to see, I, there's no doubt we will find out when we're in His presence that God has done all kinds of things that have wisdom beyond what we presently understand and grasp if we're willing to submit to Him. Now, after all of this in verses 12 through 17 and listing what Judah brought um, finally uh, to all, to finally ending this verse 83, 84 through 88 adds to it by summing up what each tribe brought. And um, and it ends to in verse in verse eighty nine with this: When Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of testimony, from between from between the two cherubim, as he spoke to him. So Moses goes into this tent of meeting. To speak with God, God speaks to him above the mercy seat. We've already tied it, and Katrina tied it again with the Lord being the source of all blessing. The Lord is the source of all blessing. The Lord is the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Then they respond to it by giving freely to God. Giving to God. And then God responds to this by blessing them with His presence and speaking to them regularly. Sometimes we see this in Scripture. We see God's blessing and when that leads to humble obedience or when it leads to a thankful response, that gives way The greater blessing. And I think in a sense that's what we see here. We see God's blessing. The, ble- the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and give you peace. Then they respond in obedience to God. And God continues to bless us with the greatest of all blessings. And that is His presence. Okay.
I want to make sure particularly that you get this off the board before I erase it because the rest of it you may get on your own from the text. But you're not going to probably get that. I do think these were in the notes that I sent out yesterday. Did anybody not get those notes? Anyone not get those notes? Has, has anyone not read them over several times, I hope, in several languages? But if, you know, so I, yeah, well, I won't embarrass you about that today if you haven't read over, but maybe in the future. Maybe in the future. Uh, but anyway, Numbers 8, Numbers 8, I'm slow to erase that. Numbers 8 is going to deal with two things. Alliteration here, which I'm using in the sermon as well. Lampsands and Levites. How about that? Lampsands and Levites. And uh, verses 1 through 4 deal with the lampstand. Would you want to read that, Frosty? Sure. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When when you mount the lamps, the seven lamps will give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron therefore did so, and he mounted the lamps at the front of the lampstand, and just just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now this was the, the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold from the base to its flowers, and it was hammered, hammered work according to the pattern which the Lord had had showed Moses, and so He made it, made the lampstand. Okay, very good. So the Lord spoke, which we often see throughout these sections. The Lord spoke, then He relates it. But this instruction again, not related to all Israel, but speak to Aaron. So he relates this to the priest, to Aaron, who's going to relate this to the priest. This is primarily priestly instruction. Now, what is the instruction here? The instruction uh, seems to me that he mounted its lamps in front of the lampstand just as the Lord had commanded. This instruction, very practical. This is instruction as far as how to give light to the holy place. There would have been no light there except for this candlestick. And I may call it different things. Lampstand, candlestick. And you understand I'm not trying to make a statement about its shape when I'm saying that. But this gives light to the place. Now we've already seen who is it that really gives light to the people? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine. The Lord is the real source of light. But the Lord is giving the priest a source of light when they serve in this holy place. We tie it back to 625. And also I think it foreshadows Him. Foreshadows Him. Shadows him who is the light of the world in John eight twelve, in John nine in verse five. He is the light of the world. The tabernacle, in a way, all foreshadows Jesus. Uh, but 
the Bible emphasizes, notice how frequently you see phrases like this. We haven't always called it attention to it in numbers, but they did in verse 3, just as the Lord commanded. Just as the Lord <coughs> commanded, the text tells us. And, uh, and, and so... In verse 4, you have the same idea with different words. He made the lampstand just as it was made. Now, or, or just as, so he made the lampstand. He did just what God told him to do. He made it just like God told him to make it. What is the significance of the fact that this lampstand, it says, it, from its base to its flowers, it hammer, it, it was hammered work. The lampstand would have looked kind of like a flowering tree, it seems like. What may be the point of that? I think it may be that even this furniture was meant to remind them of Eden. You remember in the fabric of those drapes, as Katrina called them earlier, but in the fabric of them were cherubim that were... Why? Because it's a reminder of the cherubim of the Garden of Eden. By the way, I think there's some pretty good evidence, um, maybe just in those descriptions itself, that the tabernacle was not a solid structure from... From one place, but but it had kind of open frame where those things can be seen. Do you understand what I'm saying in that? Making me describe something in the world of architecture is is difficult. Okay, so but but I think those curtains would have had those things. I don't think they would have weaved those things into them and then made them invisible, but left some frames open where you could see and visualize this. Um, but, okay. Any questions on 8, 1 through 4? Any thoughts there? The Levites. Now, we have seen a good deal about the Levites previously. We saw a good deal about the Levites in chapters 3 and 4. 3 recorded their genealogy. 4 recorded what they were to move when the tabernacle was moved. A lot of what we're reading here approximates what we read or duplicates what we read in 340 through 51 about the Levites taking the place of the firstborn in Israel. Remember, when God delivered the people from Egyptian bondage, He killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. He killed the firstborn of their livestock in Exodus 11 through 13. And God says, all the firstborn of Israel are mine. He says this in Exodus 13 verse 2. In Exodus 13, verse 12, all the firstborn of Israel were mine. Now, theoretically, they are devoted to God's holy service. 
So, what God does is God says the Levites, this tribe, will take the place of the firstborn. They will, they will be specifically dedicated to God. Now, what we'll see in the text is the first part deals with the cleansing of the Levites for this ceremony. In verse 5, again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the Levites from among the sons of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to them for their cleansing. Sprinkle purifying water on them. Let them use a razor over their whole body and wash their clothes and they shall be clean. Then let them take a bull with its grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, and a second bull you shall take for a seed. Offering. So you shall present the Levites before the tent of meeting. You shall also assemble the whole congregation of the sons of Israel and present the Levites before the Lord, and the sons of Israel shall lay hands on the Levites. So they offer the offerings to purify the Levites. A bull for a sin offering, a bull for a burnt offering, mentioned in verse 8, mentioned again in verse 12. Now, when we get to verse 12, the Levites are going to lay their hands on the head of the bull. But in verse 10, it is the firstborn laying their hands, or Israel laying their hands on the Levites. What does laying of hands Indicate here when it's laying of hand when they're laying their hands on the Levites, or the Levites are laying their hands on the animal. What what, what is the point of it? It's not specifically explained. But Sarah, I'm thinking it's whenever you bring your sacrifice, you lay your hands on it, saying, "This is my sacrifice," kind of thing, taking ownership of what you're. Okay, Leviticus one verse four, one of the places. You're taking ownership. Obedience. It's obedience because God told them to. Is it in some sense that the animal is a substitute for the person? You know, I deserve sin deserves death, and you lay your hands on the animal, the animal will die. It may be some sense of substitution. Here you have this with the Levites. The Levites are going to take the place of the firstborn in the land of Israel. Now, in verse 17, you have the same kind of thing that you did right here in Exodus 13, verse 2 and verse 12. Verse 17, Every firstborn among the sons of Israel is mine among the men and among the animals. On the day I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them to myself. So God is saying here, He is reminding them of what He did in Exodus chapter 12, that all the firstborn belong to Him. But the Levites are going to take the place of the firstborn. In verse 16, They are wholly given to Me from among the sons of Israel. I have taken them for Myself instead of the first issue of the womb, the firstborn of all the sons of Israel. Verse 18, I have taken the Levites instead of every firstborn among the sons of Israel. Now, 
in verse 11 and verse 13, we read that the Levites were offered as a wave offering. Do you remember which sacrifice the wave offering was associated with? Listen, I know that's pretty technical. But but does anybody remember that? In the peace offering in Leviticus 7, about verse 28 beginning, you took the, uh, I believe it was the breast of the animal, and it was a wave offering, in a peace offering. And the Levites are kind of a wave offering. Now, obviously with 22,000 Levites, you're probably not shaking them or moving them as we envision happening with the wave. That sometimes it was believed that they, it was like they gave the, the peace offering, they moved it toward the altar, then they moved it to themselves, because the peace offering was the only offering the worshiper ate a portion of. And it was, in a sense, giving it to God and then taking it back to themselves. Now, obviously, they don't do that with the Levites. They don't shake them or move them necessarily. But but it was, it is just a way to describe them as being given to God. They're given to God. And they are serving, they give themselves to God by serving the family of Aaron. As verse 19 says, uh, I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the sons of Israel to perform the service of the sons of Israel at the tent of meeting to make atonement on behalf of the sons of Israel so that no plague among the sons of Israel, so that so that there may be no plague among the sons of Israel by their coming near to the sanctuary. I think one of you, it might have been Sarah, used that phrase, human shield of the Levites, earlier. That in a way, they are guarding the tabernacle. And if God's wrath is going to fall on anyone, it's going to fall on them. But they are protecting the tabernacle from violation. They are guarding its holiness they are given to the sons of Aaron that no plague may come on them. I know we may look at something like this and we may say, this is not relevant to us. And I understand that at first glance. But as you think about it, there are principles involved. And let me mention a subject here that I never thought I would mention in my lifetime among brethren as a controversial subject. But it is. Things like the subject of whether women can preach. Subjects like that. All through the Bible it is God's initiative to determine who draws near Him in service. Was God saying the Levites are better than any other tribe? Was God looking down at all the other tribes and all the gifts they bring? By the way, the Levites didn't bring a gift. The Levites, in a certain sense, were the gift. Is, is, that, a, is that a way to disparage the other tribes and sacrifice they made? No. But God is the one who says the Levites are going to count nearest to the tabernacle. 
I use them in a special way. And if any unauthorized personnel approach the house, they are they are to kill them. That was the prerogative God gave the Levites because God initiates who can draw near to Him. It's not a question of whether God loves women or whether they uh, are beautiful and important in His sight. It is a question, who has God initiated to draw near to Him? And I think that this may be another subject that we may find out in eternity God has a purpose in this beyond what we can see. All we can see is that's what the Lord said and we're going to listen. But there may be a purpose to this that is beyond anything. Maybe God was seeking to build leadership qualities in men by doing it. But as the chapter ends in verses 23 through 26, and I want to ask you what's the difficulty with this. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is what applies to the Levites. From 20 years old and upward, they shall enter to perform service in the work of the tent of meeting. But the age of 50, they shall retire from the service in the work and not work anymore. They may, however, assist their brothers in the tent of meeting to keep an obligation, but they themselves shall do no work. Thus you shall deal with the Levites concerning their obligation. Now, the Levites can work from 25 to 50. At 50 they retire. There are still some things they can do. But retirement 50, that sounds good, doesn't it? Whoa. Um... The way I can remember hearing one preacher uh, on television once, and, and I sympathize with a lot of things he said, but he says, you don't read about retirement in the Bible, you know. He says, you work six days a week and the seventh day you rest. He said, we need to have a better work ethic. Now, a lot of principles he said were true, but you don't read about retirement in the Bible a little bit. Not much, but a little bit. Um... What is the difficulty with that text? What's the difficulty with that text? They, they can still work sort of with the obligation part, whatever that means. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> they can do something. I, and I'm sure that they that they have difficulties defining what all they could do and not do. But this is what I'm particularly referencing. Back in chapter twenty, back in chapter four, how many Levites? How old were you when you could start to move the tabernacle? Do you remember? Thirty. Now you're twenty-five. Now there are a lot of different explanations here, but I'm going to tell you one that may make sense. Though it is behind. Numbers 8 is, behind, is is recorded after Numbers chapter 3 and 4. It seems to have taken place before it. Moses built the tabernacle and it was finished on the first day of the first month of the second year after they come out. Now this is all connected with right after the tabernacle is completed. The census begins a month later. Some writers have suggested 
that the senses there are more Levites than than um, there are more Levites, and so as a result, after the census, the age is moved up to thirty. Now, do I know that's right? I don't. I think I give a couple of other explanations in the notes if you want to check about it. David will change the age in his time to twenty in First Chronicles, and um, but this this is a difficulty, and I don't exactly know the answer. Any of you have any comments? We we did pretty well as far as covering a good bit, Ryan. So God initially required the firstborn of everyone, and then essentially in the same context changes it to. So, I mean, they've only been there for two years. Yeah. So it's not, you know, it's not like it's the long-standing. It's like he changes the rules while they're still there. Any thoughts <laughs> on Like, is is there a significance that they should have gotten? Well, obviously, God knows all along what he's going to do. Right. You know, yeah. but, but there's there, there's got to be a point to that. <laughs> and I know what you're saying. The point, where does the tribe of Levi begin to exercise a unique place in God's plan. And I'm not saying that God didn't have that design there from the beginning, but what event happened? Do you remember? Remember? Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, and particularly at Mount Sinai what? The golden calf. The golden calf. He said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. In Exodus 32, verse 25. Who comes to him? Just yes, contextually tribe of Levi. tribe of Levi comes to him. They go throughout the camp and they kill those who are guilty, not sparing even those they love. From that point on, they have this special function. Now, like you're saying, God changes the rules quickly. I don't doubt God saw all this coming. It is a reminder, though, of the Levites' faithfulness and it's a lesson to all Israel but they need they need to imitate the loyalty to God and the zeal for God that the Levites showed on that occasion in Exodus 32. I think that's the point. Hey, thank you guys for being here. Thank, thank you for our visitor. And um, God bless you all. And we'll pick up with Numbers 9 we'll do it on Wednesday night. <coughs> Did you get the email yesterday? Uh-huh. Did, you, did you get the email yesterday? Or for the class? Uh, I think so. If you didn't, we'll send it to you. I'm not okay. sure if I did or not. So I saw it there. Okay. 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 It was about what time did you send it out? You guys know all about that. You guys know a lot worse than me.